Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today I've got a great show lined up for you. Dr. Cal Beisner is going to be joining me in just a minute. And then Paul Horrocks is going to uh, come on the program. He's written a book called Tough Guys of the Bible. And I hope he talks about uh, a lot of uh, characters in Scripture that are going to be truly inspiring, because I always think that we could use a, a strong dose of the tough guys in the Bible. So, then we're going to talk about Job with Dr., with uh, Pastor Andrew Davis. That's all ahead. But Cal Beisner is founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. It's a kind of a think tank of Christian theologians and natural scientists and uh, economists and other scholars educating for biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the proclamation and defense of the good news of salvation by God's grace. Always like having Cal on. Cal, welcome. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, does does splitting wood make me a tough guy of the Bible? It does indeed. I okay. <laughs> I'm adding Good. you to my I list of, t- a bunch of, that. of tough guys. So thank you for <laughs> mentioning that. I, I appreciate that. So Cal, I've been so curious to have you on uh, because I've been thinking about the, the Ukraine conflict and wondering how much, uh, of course, energy is involved in what's gone uh, on in the last uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, well... Um... You know, obviously, it takes a whole lot of energy to run all the tanks and planes and, and trucks and everything else that are used in a war. Uh, but I think really that's a that's a pretty tiny part of the picture. The the big picture is is this, and we've talked about this in several different articles on the Cornwall Alliance's blog at cornwallalliance.org. Um, the big picture is this: um, the the pressure from environmentalists to reduce the use of oil and natural gas and coal in the Western world uh, in the name of trying to reduce global warming has actually contributed to the fact that Russia felt quite, uh, quite able to launch this war. And it's done this in a couple of different ways. The first one is that uh, oil and natural gas are Russia's biggest imports and the best way for Russia to get foreign currency, allowing it to take part in international trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Russia's oil uh, and gas formations, geological formations, and Russia's technological uh, means of bringing up oil and gas are oh. such that Basically, Russia needs oil prices to be at about $60 a barrel or higher for it to make a profit. Now, when the U.S. had our fracking revolution uh, back basically from about 2007 to 2016-17, we suddenly began producing so much oil. That we went and, and natural gas that we went from an Indian, an importing nation to an exporting nation, and we drove the price of oil way down to uh, sometimes below twenty dollars a barrel, 
uh, often below 30 and generally around $40 a barrel. Well, Russia, therefore, couldn't make a profit on, uh, on its oil. And then when we adopted policies here in the United States, uh, particularly uh, under the, uh, the uh, Obama administration, but again under the Biden administration, uh, cutting off the uh, leasing of new uh, federal lands for oil and gas exploration and, and development and so on, well, we we produced far less oil and gas, and that that allowed the world price to rise to where Russia was making a nice big fat profit. And so now, with oil up around $120 a barrel, which is more than it's ever been, Russia's making a big fat profit on all its exports, and that's helping pay for its war. But besides that, Europe, in the name of fighting global warming, became heavily dependent on Russia for oil and especially natural natural gas, the latter used both to generate electricity and to warm people's homes. So Russia knew, hey, if we attack Ukraine in the middle of winter, you know, mid-February, uh, people in Europe are not in a position to do much to oppose us. And okay, yeah, we can we can impose some economic sanctions, but they knew they had, if you'll excuse the pun, they had the Europeans over the barrel. And that contributed to their readiness both to afford the costs financially of waging the war and to uh, essentially challenge Europeans, uh, okay, you want to really oppose us in Ukraine? We'll cut off your natural gas supplies and your people will, will freeze. Yeah, so that, when you put it that way, it's uh, quite easy to understand what the strategy was from Russia. Uh, when you look at the European countries that are getting increasingly more dependent on Russian oil, and you look at the production the U.S. was doing, were we not doing a fairly good job of producing uh, the gas and oil in an eco-friendly uh, eco way? Well, yeah, and that's actually another of the big ironies of all of this, and that is that uh, in the United States, we have very stringent regulations over na um, environmental protection in the, uh, the drilling, the mining for oil, coal, natural gas. And so our, uh, our producers do this in ways that are uh, least harmful to the earth. If we're pushing production out of the United States into other countries, especially into uh, third world countries or Russia or China, um, then we're pushing it to places where it's done in a way that's far more harmful to nature. So it's really quite ironic that so many, uh, so many environmentalists have been uh, trying to push oil, gas, and coal production out of America and into other places because it's actually worse for the planet. Mm -hmm. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. He is the founder of the Cornwall Alliance. You can go to cornwallalliance.org to learn more about uh, him and his uh, think tank, uh, very brilliant uh, writers and thinkers. And Cal, when, um, uh, when you think of energy, you certainly think of, I do anyway, of more than just gas at the pump. I think that it's tied to our national security and our regional security and 
we become what feels like more vulnerable when we lost our uh, lost our our independence. Yeah, that is so. Um, you know, some people will say, "Look, uh, you're you're talking about uh, dollars versus lives here when we want to protect the fossil fuel industries." Well, no, it's actually the opposite. It's dollars and lives together. Lives are expensive things, and mm-hmm. the more you have to spend on things uh, on on energy the less you have left over to spend on other things like food, clothing, shelter, health care, education, and so on. And so as we're being pushed to reduce our production of oil and natural gas and coal by the environmentalists, that's pushing up the price of energy, which in turn, by the way, pushes up the price of everything else because everything we get we produce by using energy. And the result is that people uh, are are less well off. They're less well fed. They're less well clothed. Less well housed. Less well transported. Less well medicated. Everything else. Uh, so all this stuff hangs together. You know, in in physics, the definition of of energy is the capacity to do work. Now, you know, people don't usually think quite that way, but that's actually what it is. No work gets done without energy. The more energy you have available, the more work gets done. Well, it's work that brings us everything that we enjoy, everything that we need through every day uh, for our physical lives, uh, and an awful lot of of it for our, our mental and our emotional lives as well. The only thing where we can, as Christians, say we don't need energy to do work is our relationship with with God, because there we are not justified by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there we don't <laughs> we don't need to work for our salvation, but for everything else we do, and that means we need energy for everything else. Mm-hmm. There are going to be a lot of vulnerable people really hurting as a result of this, Cal. Absolutely, it's uh, it's a tremendous tragedy. Uh, I am praying every day for the people of both Ukraine and and Russia. There are many brothers and sisters in Christ in both Mm -hmm. of those countries. Mm -hmm. uh, And in in both of those countries, people are suffering because of of what uh, Vladimir Putin has done. And it's a a very tragic thing, partly because Putin has uh, has taken advantage of, of the naivete of many people by claiming to be the great defender of Christendom uh, as Mother Russia being the home of the Russian Orthodox Church, which, which believes itself to be the, the foundation of true Christianity in the world. And he presents himself as the great defender of this. The reality is that when he took, took power in Russia, he uh, he killed off, he sent into exile thousands of faithful Russian Orthodox priests, and he replaced them with functionaries under his thumb. And so now uh, the true believers in Russia are generally without good shepherds, and uh, they desperately need uh, revival there, as, of course, we need revival here in America, too. Yeah, so troubling when I watch the images on TV. My heart just breaks into pieces every day. Yep, 
It does. Yeah. Dr. Cal Beister is my guest. He is the president and founder of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Go to cornwallalliance.org. We'll take a little break. When we come back, I've got a question for Cal, and it has to do with a a hundred-year-old mistake that was made, and now it's coming back to get us. Be right back. My guest is Dr. Cal Beisner, president, founder, and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance. You can go to cornwallalliance.org. He's a manly guy. He knows how to cut wood, and he does it well. We're going to, Cal, I want to ask you a question about this 100-year-old mistake that uh, is kind of coming back to get us. Yeah, right. That 100-year-old mistake was the passage of what is called the Jones Act, Mm -hmm. uh, part of the merchant uh, shipping uh, law of the United States, passed in the, I believe it was around 1908, something like that. Okay. And it requires that any goods that are to be shipped from one U.S. port to another U.S. port must be shipped on vessels that are built in the U.S., flagged in the U.S. and uh, manned uh, by a majority of U.S. citizens. That is, uh, a majority of the the, uh, shipmen must be U.S. citizens. Now, the result of that uh, is, and it was was adopted to protect U.S. shipbuilders, U.S. ship owners, U.S. uh, ship workers from foreign competition. Now, as an economist who believes in free markets and that uh, by allowing widespread competition, we, we bring goods and services to people at the lowest possible prices, I think that was nonsense from the start. But then uh, the, the, the real problem is that, uh, that what happens is that people within the United States have to pay more for stuff that's shipped from one port to another in the U.S., than they would for stuff that's shipped from somewhere in another country to the U.S., uh, even if that means it's shipped thousands of miles instead of hundreds of miles. So here's the specific spot where we're seeing this really coming home to roost right now, and that is Hawaii. In Hawaii, it's cheaper to ship oil from Russia thousands of miles, many thousands of miles, instead of from the mainland United States. And despite the fact that the oil from Russia can cost more per barrel than the oil from the United States because we have cheaper ways of of drilling and and raising it and and moving it. Um, So for people in Hawaii, Oil, which is used there partly to generate electricity because they don't have coal reserves, they don't have natural gas reserves, and they don't have much land on which it's it's uh, uh, plausible to site wind turbines or solar panels. Um, they depend on oil for generating electricity. The result is that they pay much higher prices. Um, And the result is that Hawaii has been importing a whole lot of oil from Russia, helping to pay the roughly $20 billion a day it costs Russia to wage its war in Ukraine. 
Now, uh, the United States has just recently, I think just in the last couple or three days, we've finally shut off all uh, import of oil from Russia. Well, uh, that's going to mean that people in Hawaii have to pay even more for oil uh, because of the Jones Act. Now, we pointed this out on our blog And I got a response from one man whom I respect very, very much, Stephen Mosher. He's just a great scholar on all kinds of different things. Um, And he pointed out that if we were to abolish the Jones Act, uh, then we could have, have, uh, you know, uh, terrorists from various places uh, just posing as ship uh, captains and ship crews and, and running ships coming up the Mississippi and planting bombs and things like that. Well, yeah, that's a risk, but I think that that can be taken care of um, by by designating certain countries from which flagged vessels cannot come and certain countries from which uh, sailors cannot come. Uh, and those are countries that are known as, uh, as uh, national sponsors of terrorism. Uh, so there are other things that can be done. But the Jones Act itself is uh, both bad economics and, I think, bad foreign relations because it uh, results in, in feeding Russia uh, because of, or has resulted in feeding Russia uh, from oil imports. Mm-hmm. Cal, what, what do you feel is the right way to impose energy sanctions on Russia right now? Well, I don't think anybody should be buying anything from Russia at this point. Um, What we need to do is essentially to starve the Russian economy. And sadly, that means a lot of innocent Russian people Mm -hmm. are going to suffer. Well, you know, that is sad, but the world is full of trade-offs. Right now, there are millions of Ukrainians who are suffering, thousands and thousands of them being killed by bombs and missiles and bullets. Uh, and, you know, frankly, I would rather see Russian civilians suffer economically than Ukrainians suffer both militarily and economically. And what we need to see is support for the Putin regime undermined in Russia. And that happens primarily as ordinary people begin to suffer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, war is a nasty thing, and war has all kinds of nasty consequences. And Jesus told us that wars and rumors of wars would continue all the way up to the time that he returns. So we shouldn't be shocked that these kinds of things happen. They have happened throughout human history. And what we need to be is, is wise as serpents, harmless as doves, in every way that we can be. Mm-hmm. Cal, I'd love for you to comment on the computer climate models and maybe give us oh, an update sure. as to have they proven to be right or wrong, or where are we with that? Well, there are about 100 and I believe it's 123 different uh, uh, computer climate model uh, groups that have been operating for about 20 years or so. And of those, one has been fairly accurate. Uh, And ironically, it's one that is done by Russians. Uh, (laughs) INMN something or other is the the, uh, (laughs) 
what abbreviation for mm-hmm. it. Uh, that's the only one out of the 123-some that has been able to reasonably well match uh, his, you know, past temperature in being run backward and the predictions of which over the last 20 years or so have reasonably well matched temperatures as they've developed over time afterward. All the rest, all of the rest, every single one of them, has simulated more warming than has actually been observed over the relevant period. On average, they've, they've simulated two times as much. And here's a shocking fact, Bill. You would think that with our spending literally billions of dollars a year on trying to improve these models over a period of 20-some years, they would be getting better and better. Well, the reality is they're getting worse and worse. The sixth generation of these, what are called CMIP-6, Coupled Model Intercomparison Project, sixth generation. The sixth generation is far worse than the fifth generation. <laughs> and, and you know, you, you just have to wonder, what's going on? And the answer to that, uh, try to, I'm trying to put it reasonably simply, is that the errors are really embedded directly in the models themselves, primarily in that uh, two things happen. One, the models assume that, uh, that emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are going to grow in a way uh, predicted by a scenario from the UN IPCC called, uh, I, uh, called 8.2. The problem is that is way above what's actually happening. The second one is they all have embedded in them the assumption that carbon dioxide warms the atmosphere a lot more than empirical observation finds that it really does. Mm-hmm. So we need to we need to go back to the basics of science that says, you know, you can you can have a theory, you can make predictions based on that theory, but you have to compare the predictions with reality with real-world observations, and if the observations contradict the predictions, then the theory is wrong. And it doesn't matter how smart you are, or how beautiful your theory is, or how many people agree with you, that's what it is. That's, that's the way that uh, the late Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard Feynman puts it. You're sounding like a wise, rational scientist, Cal. Oh, well, technically I'm not a scientist, but I read an enormous amount of yeah. science all the time. Sure I, some... I do try to be rational. Uh, you are that indeed. I always enjoy you coming on the show, and I always appreciate you giving us a balanced perspective. So thank you for this time, and I hope you have a great uh, rest of the day. I always encourage thank listeners you, to Bill. head over to the cornwallalliance.org. I know you often have uh, some promotion going on. We do, and this month uh, we're giving away two copies of my small book called Social Justice Versus Biblical Justice, nice. How How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel. Thank you All so much. What you do to ask for is go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the Donate button, and when they fill out the donation form in the comments field, put in promo code 22-03. Thank you. Be right back.
is fearing God, not men. Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? My guest is Paul Horrocks. He is an entrepreneur and host of the Biblical Courage podcast. He's led Bible studies in New York City for more than 15 years. He's founder and president of Justice New York City, a nonprofit that equips Christian men to reduce poverty and exploitation by promoting biblical sexual Ethics. He's written a book called Tough Guys of the Bible, Learn the Traits of Courageous Men Who Truly Follow God. Paul, nice to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. I love the I love the book title. I've been having fun with it all week. So um, it's, uh, it's a great topic, caught my attention. And I guess my first question would be, what is the one thing every Christian man should know? They want to be like one of the tough guys. Well... I would tell every Christian man, you have to fear God more than men. True. And it's the toughest thing to do. It's the toughest thing as we read about these characters in the Bible, as well as more recent Christians, that really choosing between God and men is something we have to deal with every day. And, and it's really what defines if you're really going to be all in for Jesus. Yeah. So, Paul, what would you, uh, who would you look to as some of the toughest guys in the Bible? So one example I love is Gideon. And okay. some people know Gideon's story, but if you don't know his story— Gideon uh, was called by God to go and fight 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites who were oppressing Israel. And God said, you have too many people. He had 22,000. He said, cut it down. He cut it down to 10,000. God said, that's still too many. He cut it down to 300. And with 300 people, uh, and with God's help, they went and they fought these 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites and defeated them. And it's just this incredible story because Gideon went. When you think about it, it just sounds like a, a suicide mission. And not only did Gideon go, these 300 other men went. And they went and they just had faith that God could actually defeat this enemy. So it's just a great example of what it means to have faith and, and courage and go and, and follow God's commands. Yeah, truly a remarkable story. You talk about uh, four common characteristics of courageous men that we can incorporate uh, these virtues into our lives. I'd love for you to share those. Yeah. So as we went through the Bible, and, and we I wrote this book with my father, who's a pastor, and what we saw is that there were these four characteristics that just kept coming up over and over with these really courageous men in the Bible. One is they took risks to serve God. Over and over again, you see them taking risks. That could be physical risk. It could be social risk. It could be economic risk. But they were willing to take that risk to serve God. The second thing is they were constantly speaking the truth directly. And it's something that's really hard to do in our society. People criticize you so quickly. And yet you saw that these men did that. The third thing is that they excelled at what they did. They were really good at it, and they worked really hard to be good at it. And as a result, they got results. And the last thing is what I mentioned up front, that they feared God more than men. Mm -hmm. I think that's the toughest thing to do is to, again, truly fear God more than men. You can take risk and speak the truth directly and excel at what you do. But if you don't fear God more than men, you're not really going to be able to be all in for Jesus. Yeah, great point. Uh, Paul Horrocks is my guest. He's written a book called Tough Guys of the Bible, Learn the Traits of Courageous Men Who Truly Follow God. Uh, Paul, certainly in in the culture today, uh, when you are a confessing Christian, people may just flat out treat you negatively when they find that out about you. Um, so maybe in, encourage listeners who are, are hearing you today to, to say, yeah, and, and what's your point? You're going to treat me negatively? Okay, I can live with that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the points we make in the book is that being a Christian and truly living that out is one of the toughest things that you will ever do, but it's totally worth it. When you see the results, I mean, one of the things that we talk about is building up rewards in heaven and really thinking about that, thinking about the rewards you have on this earth are so temporary, and yet the rewards in heaven are going to be forever. And if you just do a simple uh, math compounding exercise. Not on this show, no math. (laughs) Yeah, and so it's worth a lot more um, in eternity than it is here on earth. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I would tell people is that, yes, it's going to be hard, but it's worth it. And you see it over and over again. And I also think uh, when you read about these characters that you think men will think to themselves, I want to be like them. In that circumstance, I would want to be like these strong, courageous men in the Bible. And so the key is we have to do that now. And we're not going to be called on most likely like Elijah to call down fire from heaven, but we are going to be called on to speak up when it's difficult to speak up when the world says, hey, this is the way you ought to do it, and it's in conflict with the Bible, and we have to say, no, we're going to stick with what the Bible says. Yeah. Paul, when I think of the risks that Paul had to take, I mean, obviously he had he had a, a long history, and yet he took the risks that he took to serve God. I'd love for you to say more about that. Yeah. When you think about the Apostle Paul, uh, I mean, obviously there's many stories of him taking physical risk, right? He was imprisoned and beaten and stoned and shipwrecked, and he just kept going. He was kind of like the energizer bunny of the ancient world, right? No matter what you did to him, he just kept getting up and kept staying on mission. But he also gave up a lot of other things. Uh, he had status in that society, right? He was uh, had a letter from the, the chief priest. And so these were powerful people in his day. And in order to follow God, he had to give that up. He had to lose that status. He went from being a friend of the chief priest to being an enemy. And we don't know the specifics of what happened with his family and his other friends, but you can only imagine that once he lost that connection and once there was uh, people who wanted to kill him, that he did lose a lot of friends as a result of that. So Mm -hmm. you just see over and over again, he endured a lot to truly follow God. Yeah. And Paul, the truth often offends more than more than lies will. Yeah, that's... Not that uh, you want to lie ever, but the truth can really offend people. And tough guys seem to often stand alone or they're in the minority. You see that over and over again, that you see people speaking truth. And and a great example of that is uh, certainly uh, Stephen, that we don't always think of Stephen as a courageous man. We a lot of times think of him almost uh, empathetically because he was this martyr. And yet, this story of him standing before the Sanhedrin council and effectively giving them a history lesson <laughs> and telling them, mm-hmm. Hey, this is the way things are. And, and they're the experts. They're the, the people who are the most sophisticated and most learned about the, uh, the Jewish religion. And yet Stephen stood there and said, you got it wrong. And here's the history. And let me tell you, that took incredible courage for him to do that. And another thing I'll say that, that took incredible courage is, as they were stoning him, as they're basically executing him, he's saying, God, don't hold this against them. And that takes incredible courage to do that. So, Paul, obviously a courageous man, a man that is a tough guy, you're going to want to um, not be passive, and it's not compassionate to remain silent, And but your words will reveal your heart. Yeah, I think we, we, we see that in our society today, that if somebody is doing something, that there's this sense that if you call them out for that, if you point it out to them, 
that somehow you're saying something offensive. But it, it's really awful, and it's not compassionate to remain silent. If you have a friend that's going down a destructive path, if you have a friend, let's just say that they're struggling with alcoholism, and you can see that they're going to lose their job, and they're going to lose their family, and they're going to lose their house if they continue on this path, it really lacks compassion for you not to speak up. And that's one of the things we see with the tough guys is that they did speak up. They did challenge people, and they did say, hey, the way you're living is not good. Uh, what you're doing is not good. You're living in sin, and it's going to lead to destruction. And so I think we need to do that today. I think we need to have a culture, especially within the church, of men who are challenging one another. We shouldn't be challenging one another uh, because we're angry, don't like each other, but because we truly love each other and want to see each other thrive. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's an important point. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And of course, sometimes people listen, other times they don't. All you have to do is think of Jeremiah. Yes, Jeremiah's a great example yeah. of he spoke the truth for 40 years. Nobody listened. Nobody listened to him. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they put him into a, um, a cistern. They you know, attempted to kill him. And, and some you know, Jewish history, uh, some people think he was stoned at the end of his life. So that's what you get for being right all the time is uh, at the end of your life, potentially they execute you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he just kept going over and over again. And But what's amazing about Jeremiah is while in his life, no one listened to him. We're still talking about him today. I know. Right? It's thousands of years later. And what he wrote is so beneficial to us today. And so I think that's the other lesson that people can learn when you think about these tough guys is you just have to follow God, do what he calls you to do, and let him use your efforts. Yeah. And you don't know if it's going to be years later that your efforts will come to fruition. But uh, just go ahead and, and let him worry about the timing. Yeah. Now, having said that, uh, Paul, I think of this line in my head that's saying, what you're doing speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. And to be a good leader, it's pretty important to lead by example. So how can Christian men use examples from your book in their everyday lives? Yeah, so one of the things we do in the book is we compare these men in the Bible to more recent men. Some are men from my father's ministry. And so there's some great examples, and I'll, I'll give one. There's a young man, Carl, was in high school. And Carl uh, went to school, and they basically had an English class. They had some substitutes who came in and started really presenting a worldly view of sex and sexual relations and so forth, and uh, were effectively promoting homosexuality and transgenderism. And so he spoke up and spoke to teachers and ultimately spoke to the administration and challenged them. And they didn't completely stop, but they reduced it significantly. And so it's a a small example of he was in a public school setting. He wasn't in a position to prevent this from happening. But because he spoke up, he was able to bless his uh, classmates because they were less likely to be indoctrinated with some of these things. So very small example, but if we had lots of those small examples of people speaking up and having courage in these difficult circumstances, we would just see a lot more uh, of our culture moving back toward the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yesterday on my program, I, I spent an hour talking about a biblical understanding of hell, and I was saying to listeners, you know, this is not a topic that comes up very often, and then as I'm going through your book, the last couple of days I come across um, uh, the Jonathan Edwards uh, telling sinners the truth they needed to hear and his famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
He uses the word hell 51 times, sinners 17 times, wrath 52 times, and fire 17 times. Yeah, so when he spoke... Oh, go ahead. There's a tough guy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's an incredible sermon, and a lot of people have heard of that sermon, but one of the things that struck me when I read that sermon was how many times he talked about these topics of hell and wrath and sin, and I thought, wow, in a number of churches that I've attended... You can go a whole year without hearing the word hell or mm-hmm. hearing a whole lot about sin or hearing a lot about wrath. And so there's a lot of times that we like to talk about God's love and grace and forgiveness, and that's a very popular topic on Sunday morning. But it's much harder to talk about the uh, the realities that, hey, there are consequences to our sin. And that's what Jonathan Edwards did very effectively, and it was a very effective sermon in terms of challenging people to actually turn back to God. Mm-hmm. So Jesus spoke the truth directly to to make disciples. That was, I mean, he's the toughest guy in the book, period. Yeah, so you see these characteristics in Jesus. And a lot of times I think people have a uh, misunderstanding of Jesus. And I, and I joke that you know some people think that Jesus is God's hippie alter ego that <laughs> came back after a vacation and, you know, had this really far out ideas about grace and everything. But Jesus said some really aggressive things, right? He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, right? Right? He called them names. Uh, he certainly turned over tables in the temple. He called his best friend, uh, Peter, uh, you know, Satan. He said, Satan, get behind me. And one of the stories that I love the most in the Bible is the story in John 6, where people want to come and make Jesus king. And what ends up happening is that Jesus says to them, look, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And they don't understand that this is a metaphor. And so they say, this is really difficult. He says, well, you have to do it anyway. And it says many of his followers fell away. Mm-hmm. That Jesus was not afraid to give them difficult truths. And what he wanted was them to uh, conform to his way to follow him, even if it was hard. And he was not willing to go and chase them and try to convince them. In fact, after that happened, he turned to his apostles and said, oh, you're still here? And they didn't say, yes, because we love what you said. They said, where else are we going to go? We don't have a better option. And so it's just so fascinating that Jesus was willing to push people away by speaking truth to them and saying, look, you have to be all in. You have to follow me and not worry about the consequences of whether or not people stuck with him. Yeah. And of course, Jesus uh, managed, like you say in your book, to call the Pharisees hypocrites, greedy, self-indulgent, blind, whitewashed, tombs, lawless, sons of murderers, and snakes. And not just one snake, a whole family of them. So <laughs> let me let me take a, a short break, uh, Paul, and we'll come back and continue discussing Paul Hork's uh, new book called Tough Guys of the Bible, Learn the Traits of Courageous Men Who Truly Follow God. guest. He wrote a book with his dad, the Reverend David Horks. It's called Tough Guys of the Bible, Learn the Traits of Courageous Men Who Truly Follow God. And Paul, do tough guys learn how to pick their battles? 
Absolutely. You certainly see that in the Bible, that sometimes they speak up and sometimes they don't. We see that with Jesus. There were times when he refused to respond to the Pharisees, and other times he took it head on. And so I think that's a great example for how we ought to think, hey, is this a profitable battle or is it not a profitable battle? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what we can uh, learn about management from Nehemiah's story. So if you don't know Nehemiah's story, Nehemiah had a great job as cupbearer to the king of Persia. And he left it to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. It had been about 100 years since they had been uh, allowed to return. The Jews had been allowed to return back to Judah. And the city walls are still broken down. And so he goes and he does a lot of things really well. He shows up. Number one, he asked the king, who was a powerful ally that he had, to give him all the supplies he needed. So he showed up. He had the right equipment, the right supplies. Second thing he did, he shows up and he surveys the city. And he basically puts a plan in place third thing he does is when he gets everyone together, he organizes them and says, look, different people are going to work at different sections. And then he also puts a plan in place for security. He says, look, we're going to fight, or excuse me, we're going to build the wall while we also have our weapons. And we're going to use trumpets so that if one side of the wall is attacked, other people will come and help defend us. And then ultimately, uh, he's really shrewd. Lots of people are trying to assassinate him, and he refuses to meet with them. He's smart enough to just stay on mission. So ultimately, if you don't know the story, he ends up rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days after 100 years had passed and no one else was able to do this. So he does this incredible thing, creates security for the Jews in Jerusalem, and basically is a great example of what it means to excel at what you do and and just be a great manager. Yeah, it's a great story. I appreciate um, that being a part of, of your book. I think it's very helpful. When you talk about doing things with excellence, that I think at times can be challenging for men to hear because they oftentimes want to be better at what they do than how well they do it currently. Say more about that. Yeah, it's so important that other people will respect you and it will give you influence if you really excel at what you do. Mm-hmm. And of course, that takes practice, it takes discipline, it takes time doing things. Uh, you know, when we look at the story of Joseph, uh, Joseph just worked hard in every circumstance, and he was put in really difficult circumstances. He was first made a slave in Potiphar's house, and he worked so hard trying to organize the household that Potiphar put him in charge of everything. And so that's an example of someone doing a great job in a difficult circumstance where he would have had every right you know, to most people to just complain and say, hey, I'm a slave, and, and I you know, lost my privileged place in my own father's house. But yet he just worked hard. And then they, it gets worse. They put him in prison, and he works really hard in the prison. And so what you see is that, again, it's a very difficult circumstance. He works hard so much so that the jailer puts him in charge of the entire jail, which who in the world puts a prisoner in charge of the jail? <laughs> Good point. So then ultimately, when he is given this assignment to effectively be the prime minister of Egypt and help uh, prevent them from starving by saving food during the years of plenty— He's had all these years of practicing at being a good manager in these much smaller arenas and doing it just for the sake of doing it, not because he was getting anything out of it. I'm sure he didn't get anything out of uh, you know, working hard in jail other than he had a lot of assignments. So I think that's a great example of how we can just work really hard when we have small assignments so that when we're given a large assignment by God, we're ready for it. Mm-hmm. Paul, in your book, you mentioned the issues and troubles of our our nation, our world 
currently? How, how can we use examples from the Bible and, and God's Word to uh, save what, our nation? Yeah, so certainly when you look at the data, uh, our nation's moving further and further from God. And even if you just observe what we're seeing, there's uh, just this rise of, of things that are so uh, in opposition to the beliefs of the Bible. And what we see throughout history and read the Bible is that when nations do go off course, God will send these strong men, these prophets, to come and try to turn them back. And we see this certainly with the prophets, we see this with the apostles, and we see this with Jesus himself. And so I think those are great examples for us in terms of how we can think about turning our nation back. Can we be like all those courageous men and try to turn our nation back by challenging our nation? And this can happen at a very local level. It can happen at a national level. But what can we do to point out, hey, the trajectory of our nation is the wrong trajectory. We need to turn back to God and encourage people to do that. Mm-hmm. I would love for you, Paul, to talk a little bit about how Elijah feared God more than men. It's an incredible story, of course, but uh, you use kind of a, a poignant illustration in your book. Yeah, so, given what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, Elijah is amazing, and, and if you don't know his story— um, God has him uh, pronounced to Ahab, hey, it's not going to rain for until I say so. And so there is a, uh, an example where um, for three and a half years it doesn't rain and there's a famine going on. So Ahab is looking all over the world for Elijah. And so God comes to Elijah and says, hey, I want you to go and uh, meet with Ahab. And you got to think at this point, after three and a half years of hiding from Ahab, that Elijah must have thought, well, Ahab who? Ahab Jones? Ahab Smith? There's a lot of Ahabs, right? Mm-hmm. No, I mean King Ahab. And so he goes. He goes and he challenges King Ahab. And ultimately, uh, there's this showdown between Elijah and all these false prophets of Baal and Asherah. And they build these two altars. And Elijah, he doesn't just go. And you, and you can imagine the scene where it's himself and probably many other people who are on the side of Baal and Asherah. And he starts to mock them. He's making fun of the, uh, these prophets who are trying to bring fire down by cutting themselves and crying out to their God and saying, maybe your God is uh, asleep or maybe he is relieving himself or maybe he's on vacation. And so the example you use in the book is if you went to a, uh, a sports bar and you were in favor of one team, let's say UCLA, but everyone there was in favor of USC – if USC didn't even show up and you started to mock all those people, it wouldn't be long before all those <laughs> USC fans took you and threw you out of the bar as, mm-hmm. as uh, you know, hard as they could. And so Elijah has incredible courage to do this, to just go and to challenge it. And if you don't know the rest of the story, of course, of course Elijah does call fire down from heaven and the uh, altar does burn. And as a result, the people turn on these prophets of Baal and Asherah and uh, they, um, killed them all uh, by uh, a river. And it's just an incredible story. And and just to continue with Elijah, later on, there are, uh, it's Ahab's son sends all these soldiers out to kill Elijah. And so Elijah's sitting on top of the hill and he sends these 50 soldiers and he gets close enough, these soldiers, that he can talk to them. But then God sends fire down from heaven and consumes them. And it happens again with a second set of 50. And finally, the, the third set of 50, the leader comes out and begs Elijah not to take their lives. And Elijah goes with them to uh, Ahab's son and talks to him and challenges him. So you just see all throughout Elijah's life, 
that he has incredible courage to go and challenge these kings because God tells him to do it, despite the fact that these kings wanted to kill him. Yeah, great, great story. So, Paul, we just have a minute left. What is the maybe one point you would want readers to take away from Tough Guys of the Bible? I have a feeling I know, but I'm going to let you say. Certainly, what I said up front about fearing God more yeah. than man, but I would say uh, follow God in the little things. Uh, if you can stand up for God when it's these little things in your day-to-day life, do that, because if you do that, you'll prepare yourself for when God asks you to do something big. And I always tell everyone, don't think that you're going to be the person who's going to uh, really take on that difficult circumstance if you're not willing to take risk for God or fear him more than men in the little circumstance. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you so much for doing the show. I'm delighted to uh, have had this chance to talk about Tough Guys of the Bible, Learn the Traits of Courageous Men Who Truly Follow God. Paul Horrocks has been my guest. Paul, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Have a good rest of the day. All right, we'll take a small break, and then uh, hour two is just ahead. And you know it's uh, Wednesday, all right, 5 o'clock Central, and that means we're going back to our series of Old Testament characters. And today, Pastor Andrew Davis is going to talk about Job. I can hardly wait. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.